the 1990s, waste management was the largest garbage company in the world. What had begun as the dream of a Dutch immigrant had grown into a billion-dollar company over the course of a hundred years. But waste management had a dirty secret. Its accounting was nastier than its landfills. Behind the scenes, auditors repeatedly tried to get waste management to clean up its act, even giving the company a to-do list for fixing its sketchy accounting. But according to the SEC, the fraud only got worse. When waste management brought in a new CEO, he saw that the financials were a dumpster fire and ran for the hills. Things were about to get filthy. I'm Michael McLaughlin, and this is Scheme. Let's do this. In the late 1800s, trash disposal was a serious problem in the U.S. City streets and sidewalks were filled with garbage. But where some people saw a nuisance, Dutch immigrants saw an opportunity. They began collecting food scraps from restaurants to feed their hogs and earned a reputation for being reliable and hardworking. Before long, the Dutch were dominating the waste disposal industry. Trash hauling required the ability to handle horses and heavy loads, which was perfect for the Dutch as they had worked as farmers in the Netherlands. One of the Dutch immigrants, a man named Harm Heizinga, started hauling trash in the 1890s for $1.25 a wagon load. He couldn't possibly know it, but his small company would one day become a global corporation. But the people who would take it to the next level were his grandson Wayne and a man named Dean Buntrock. Buntrock grew up in Columbus, South Dakota, population 200, during the Depression. After graduating from St. Olaf College in Minnesota, he took a job in the insurance industry. But Buntrock had married into the Heisinga family, so his destiny was in trash hauling. When his in-laws asked him to come to Chicago to manage their garbage business, Ace Scavenger Service, Buntrock accepted. But Buntrock wasn't content to run a small business. He had bigger ambitions. In 1968, he convinced his wife's cousin Wayne and Larry Beck to join forces with him in the garbage business. They put each of their trash hauling businesses into a single holding company, which they decided to call Waste Management. Now before we continue, I need to say a few words about Wayne Heisinga because this guy truly led an interesting life. Back when he was a student at Calvin College in 1957, he had a pet alligator that died after drinking whiskey at a party. I'm not kidding. I don't even know what's the craziest part of that story. That he brought a gator to a college campus? That he then brought the gator to a party? Or that he got the gator liquored up? Heisinga then dropped out of college, did a stint in the Army Reserve, and moved to Florida to work for a trash hauler. He drove a garbage truck from 2 a.m. to noon for $500 a month and saved enough money to grow his own trash hauling business, Southern Sanitation Service, to 40 trucks. After Waste Management was formed, Heisinga got tired of traveling from Florida to Waste Management's headquarters in Illinois, and he also didn't like answering to Dean Buntrock, who was now the CEO. So in 1984, Heisinga left Waste Management to do what some people only dream of. He raced cars, went deep-sea fishing, and hung out on his yacht. But Heisinga grew tired of this lifestyle, and by 1987 he was looking for the next big thing in his life. That's when a friend encouraged him to check out his new video rental store. Heisinga didn't even own a VCR, but he decided to check out the store, which was called Blockbuster. Heisinga loved it. Blockbuster was just a small chain with 19 stores at the time, but Heisinga was so impressed that he started buying up stores and turned it into a national chain. 
he basically created the Walmart of video stores, where he could get big buckets of popcorn, candy, anything except porn. In 1994, Huizinga exchanged his Blockbuster shares for $8.4 billion of Viacom stock. So now he had even more money to play with. And what do you do when you're a billionaire and you're tired of car racing and yachts? You buy a sports team. Huizinga was the first owner of the Florida Marlins in baseball and the Florida Panthers in hockey, both of which played their first games in 1993. He also loved football, having had season tickets for the Miami Dolphins since 1966, so he bought the Dolphins and their stadium in 1994. While the Marlins won a World Series and the Panthers made the Stanley Cup playoffs, Huizinga unfortunately never led the Dolphins to the Super Bowl. But there's no reason to be sad as he sold the Dolphins for nearly seven times what he had paid. And despite owning three sports teams, Huizinga managed to continue starting other businesses, co-founding Extended Stay America in 1995 and founding AutoNation in 1996. So Wayne Huizinga was clearly a talented entrepreneur, but he was even better when it came to timing, having gotten out of Blockbuster before it collapsed and gotten out of waste management before it was accused of fraud. Which brings us back to trash hauling. Waste management went public in 1971, which brought an influx of capital. But it also brought additional pressure. Investors wanted to see growth. Waste management thus went on an epic spending spree, buying hundreds of companies. And this did grow the company. Waste management went from just $16 million in sales at its IPO to $7.5 billion in sales by 1991. It had become the world's largest waste disposal firm, with profits growing more than 30% annually on average for two decades. But waste management was a victim of its own success. Investors were continually clamoring for more growth, but there are only so many other trash haulers you can acquire. Thus, waste management's executives began to look elsewhere for growth. They explored new lines of business, such as environmental engineering, hazardous waste management, lawn care, and asbestos removal. They even tried renting out some of their landfills for children's birthday parties. Okay, I'm just kidding. They would never do something like that unless, of course, there was demand for it. Unfortunately, waste management's new businesses didn't perform well, and its core trash hauling business was being hit with new environmental regulations. It turns out some people are concerned about the health effects of living near a landfill. It's crazy, I know. Thus, waste management was facing multiple obstacles to growth. But investors didn't want to hear excuses. Waste management's executives were under pressure to hit their earnings targets. And that's when the SEC said their accounting got dirty. So let's dive into the fraud. Remember how waste management acquired lots of companies? Well, each quarter, those subsidiaries would report their financial results to Waste Management's corporate office. If the figures didn't look good, the SEC said Waste Management's executives would just replace the actual results with bogus figures. Here's an example. One subsidiary depreciated its trucks over eight years and assigned them a salvage value of zero. When the corporate office saw this, they increased the useful life to 12 years and revised the salvage value to 30000 now, there's nothing wrong with changing your depreciation estimates if new information has come to light about the useful life or salvage value of your assets. But that's not what happened here. The SEC said the changes were unsupported by evidence. This was just a way for executives to slash current period expenses and boost profits. By increasing the useful life of its assets, waste management stretched out the depreciation over a longer time horizon, 
thereby reducing depreciation in the current period. And by increasing the salvage value of its assets, waste management reduced the total depreciation it had to record. Both of these are classic techniques for inflating earnings. Now, to keep things secret, waste management's corporate executives never told the subsidiaries about these changes, which they referred to as top-level adjustments. But while the top-level adjustments allowed waste management to hit its earnings target in the current period, they created a long-term problem. To continue growing earnings, fraudulent earnings from one period needed to be replaced with more fraudulent earnings in the next period. Here's an analogy. Let's say you've got a hot date, so you steal from your employer to take them out for a steak dinner. You have a really nice evening and manage to get a second date. Now, for that second date, the expectations are going to be really high. Your date is going to expect something classy, like lobster. You can't just take them to McDonald's, point to the menu, and tell them your budget is five bucks. You've already set the expectations high with the steak dinner, so now you need to steal from your employer again to pay for another classy dinner. The moral of the story is that fraud leads to more fraud. An alternative moral of the story is to only date people who think McDonald's is a classy place, although that dating strategy could lead to other problems. Now, the SEC said waste management frequently played around with its depreciation, making unsupported increases in the useful lives of assets and assigning arbitrary salvage values to assets that previously had no salvage value. Thus, this wasn't a one-time thing and depreciation was by no means the only top-level adjustment made. The SEC said management would scan the balance sheet looking for estimated liabilities, which are called reserves, and then reduce those liabilities to boost income. Management referred to this process as conducting, quote, sweeps. I love how they come up with code names for things like top-level adjustments and sweeps. Sometimes I wish I had that level of creativity. But if I did, I'd probably be in jail for securities fraud. The SEC also said that waste management's executives didn't record expenses for the decrease in the value of landfills as they filled with garbage, improperly increased the lives of landfills due to supposed new technologies, failed to write off unsuccessful and abandoned landfills, improperly capitalized interest, underreported income tax expense and bad debts, and understated reserves for self-insurance, environmental remediation, and closure and post-closure costs for landfills. The SEC said waste management did these things for years. So how did they get away with it for so long? Well, waste management did occasionally record charges for accounting misstatements from prior periods. But they had a way of making those expenses disappear. It was called netting. Here's how it worked. Let's say waste management had to book a $5 million loss as an accounting adjustment from a prior period. Telling investors there's a $5 million loss would call attention to it so the company would net the loss with a one-time gain from the sale of an asset. Thus, the $5 million loss and the $5 million gain cancel out, and the net effect is zero. Investors don't notice the $5 million loss from the accounting misstatement, and everyone's happy. Until this becomes public and all hell breaks loose, but we'll get to that. Netting was a pretty handy tool, as waste management used it to conceal nearly half a billion in current period expenses and prior period misstatements. Now you're probably wondering, where was waste management's auditor? That's a great question, and the answer's a bit complicated. The auditor was Arthur Anderson, the company that would later become infamous as the auditor of WorldCom and Enron. According to the SEC, Anderson was well aware of the accounting problems at waste management. 
In a letter to management on May 29, 1992, Anderson complained that waste management had increased the salvage values and or useful lives of its property plant and equipment in the fourth quarter of every year for the past five years. Anderson recommended doing a one-time study to determine the proper salvage values and useful lives. It took years, but in November of 1995, Waste Management's controller finally initiated such a study. On January 10, 1996, the author of the study issued a memo stating that asset values were indeed inflated. So what happened? Waste Management's executives went nuclear. They told the author of the study to stop doing research immediately, destroyed all copies of the memo, and deleted the document from his hard drive. Then they sent a robot back in time to kill the author of the study's mother so he would never be born. I'm just kidding about that last part. It's the plot for the movie Terminator. Let's get back to Anderson's letter to management on May 29, 1992. Anderson told Waste Management it needed to stop making top-level adjustments, and Anderson proposed some adjusting journal entries. But the SEC said Waste Management just wouldn't stop. It was like a dog that had been given unlimited access to cheeseburgers. Anderson even made a list of 32 changes it said Waste Management must make. Waste Management secretly agreed to write off the accumulated errors over 10 years and to change its accounting practices in the future. But the SEC later had a big problem with this. Why? Well, it was basically an agreement between the company and its auditor to cover up past frauds with future frauds. But it's about to get crazier because Waste Management wouldn't even comply with the secret agreement. It failed to do over two-thirds of the must-do action steps. In fact, the SEC said Waste Management actually got bolder with its fraud. It said at one point, Waste Management's general counsel, Herbert Goetz, questioned whether the company was committing securities fraud. Look, if your company's lawyer ever says in a meeting, I wonder if this is securities fraud, the answer is probably yes. So why didn't Anderson simply stand up and say enough? I see three main reasons. First, Anderson had been Waste Management's auditor since its IPO, and it viewed Waste Management as a, quote, crown jewel client. Second, a lot of people at Waste Management used to work for Anderson. From the time that Waste Management went public until 1997, every single chief financial officer and chief accounting officer at Waste Management had previously worked for Anderson. And in the 1990s, 14 former Anderson employees worked at Waste Management, with many of them working in accounting or finance. For example, both the CFO, James Koenig, and CAO, Thomas Howe, used to work in Anderson. Howe had been a partner there for 30 years. He'd been in charge of the Waste Management Audit from 1976 to 1983 and was slated to lead the audit again in 1990 when Waste Management hired him. Third, Anderson was making a lot of money off Waste Management, particularly with non-audit fees, so it had a strong incentive not to lose this client. So let's discuss those non-audit fees. Waste management put a cap on the amount it could pay for its audits, but it allowed the company to pay extra money to Arthur Anderson for, quote, special work. Thus, for Anderson to make more money, it needed to sell services other than auditing to waste management. And that's exactly what it did. From 1991 to 1997, Anderson made $7.5 million from auditing waste management, but more than twice that amount, $17.8 million, from non-audit fees. Some of the $17.8 million was for tax work, and some was for consulting. So what did this consulting consist of? $3.7 million was for a, quote, strategic review, 
Anderson spent 11 months analyzing Waste Management's business structure and proposed a new operating model. This strategic review, however, was, quote, virtually ignored and described as a boondoggle. With Waste Management paying millions in consulting fees, Anderson had a strong incentive to keep this client. The SEC said that Anderson, quote, failed to stand up to management and knew or should have known that the clean audit opinions it issued were false and misleading. So if the auditor didn't blow the whistle on this fraud, who did? Well, do you remember how I said that waste management's forays into new lines of business weren't working out? Investors were upset with Buntrock for overextending the company. Thus, Buntrock stepped down and was replaced by Waste Management's president and COO, Philip Rooney, in June of 1996. Rooney promised to restructure the company and focus on the core business. But investors didn't believe his plan went far enough. A major investor, George Soros, asked the board to fire Rooney, so he resigned on February 18, 1997. Buntrock temporarily took the reins while the board looked for the next CEO. And their choice was interesting. Waste management hired Ronald LeMay, who had been president and COO at Sprint. It might seem odd that a garbage company would hire a telecommunications executive, but investors wanted an outsider to shake up the company. And shake up the company he did. LeMay was the wrong guy to hire if you've been committing fraud for years. He was an attorney and had started his career as a regulatory lawyer at AT&T. Thus, LeMay was straight as an arrow, and one of the first things he did was initiate a review of Waste Management's accounting. That's a major party foul. Asking about the accounting at Waste Management in the 1990s was like a kid asking how hot dogs are made. There's an answer, but you're not going to like it. LeMay abruptly resigned after less than four months on the job, and then Waste Management's CFO resigned the exact same day. The stock price plummeted. Waste Management's board wanted to calm investors, so they quickly appointed Steve Miller as temporary chairman and CEO. Miller had worked with Lee Iacocca at Chrysler in the 1980s, and he'd acquired a reputation as a turnaround specialist. He said he had no desire to be a permanent CEO because he enjoyed skiing, using his hot tub, and building a model railroad in his basement with his wife. Miller had loads of money and said he just liked running companies that are a basket case. He later wrote a book titled, the Turnaround Kid, What I Learned Rescuing America's Most Troubled Companies. Miller was a bit of a character. At Chrysler, he once held a toy gun to his head and told a group of lenders he was going to kill himself if they didn't sign the deal. I can't believe that strategy worked, as I would have called his bluff and told him to pull the trigger. Miller calmed down Waste Management's executives by telling them, quote, I've seen this movie before. Your version isn't as scary as some others. He also described the CEO and CFO resigning on the exact same day as, quote, absolutely coincidental. It's not as if the two of them were in the office one day and opened up a box and found something in it they didn't like and agreed they both ought to get the hell out of here. But that wasn't entirely accurate. Lee May had opened a box and found something he didn't like, the company's accounting. He described the accounting as, quote, spooky and ran back to his old job at Sprint. But the accounting review Lee May had initiated at Waste Management continued. And in February of 1998, Waste Management dropped a bombshell. It would be restating its financials from 1992 through the first three quarters of 1997. Waste Management had overstated pre-tax profit by nearly $1.7 billion, and it had understated its income tax expense by $190 million. At the time, this was the largest restatement in history. 
The company also reported an additional $1.7 billion in impairment losses and other charges. Between the restatement and the impairment losses, investors were looking at nearly $3.6 billion in charges for the fourth quarter of 1997. The stock price dropped from $35 to $22 a share, and shareholders lost over $6 billion. Now it's the SEC's turn to take the stage. In March of 2002, it charged Dean Buntrock and five other waste management executives with, quote, perpetrating a massive financial fraud lasting more than five years. The SEC described Buntrock as, quote, the driving force behind the fraud and said he was the one who set the earnings targets, directed the accounting changes, and announced the phony numbers. The SEC's complaint was 138 pages long, and it makes for some great bedtime reading. My favorite quote has to do with stretching out the depreciation. Quote, the more the trucks were used and the older they became, the more the defendants said they were worth. You know, some things do get better with age. Cheese, wine, blue jeans, just not garbage trucks. But with all due respect to the SEC, I think the New York Times summarized the fraud best, saying, quote, Numbers for expenses at waste management became almost magical things, appearing and disappearing at will for the purpose of reaching preset earnings goals. Now, there are some things in life you'd love to be magical. Works of art, sunsets, sex, but you never want your accounting to be magical. The SEC said waste management's executives profited handsomely from their fraud. They earned bonuses, stock options, and enhanced retirement benefits based on the company's inflated profits. Buntrock even got a $700,000 tax benefit by donating waste management stock to his alma mater so a building could be named after him. So what happened to the six executives? Bruce Tobixson, the VP of Finance, settled with the SEC on September 28, 2004. He agreed to pay a $120,000 civil penalty and $689,159 in disgorgement. Buntrock, Rooney, Howe, and Getz later settled with the SEC as well, neither admitting nor denying guilt. They were hit with more than $30 million of interest, disgorgement, and civil penalties. But they got off pretty easy because Waste Management agreed to pay $26.8 million on behalf of its executives. I don't know if I'd have liked that if I was a waste management investor, because waste management itself hadn't been charged as a defendant. Buntrock agreed to pay $2.3 million of his own money, but the other executives didn't have to pay much, given what happened. But the sixth executive was a different story. James Koenig, waste management's former CFO, chose to fight the charges. The trial lasted 11 weeks. In June of 2006, the jury decided in the SEC's favor on all 60 violations, including securities fraud, falsifying company books and records, and lying to auditors. This wasn't a criminal trial, so Koenig didn't have to go to prison, but he had to pay $2.5 million, and he was later barred from serving as an officer or director of a public company. Surprisingly, not one of the six executives served a day in jail or was criminally charged. But we're not done. The SEC also went after Arthur Anderson. Anderson and four of its former partners settled with the SEC, with the firm agreeing to pay a fine of $7 million in 2001. Given the scale of what the SEC said took place, I think Anderson got off with a slap on the wrist. The worst of it was the damage to Anderson's reputation, but that was a moot point. Anderson would be wiped off the map in 2002 after being indicted for its role in the Enron scandal. 
the company that had been founded in 1913 and had once been known for honesty and integrity, had come to what the Wall Street Journal called, quote, a humiliating end. So how could the waste management fraud have been prevented? I think three things would have been critical. First, waste management needed a stronger, more independent board. Buntrock, the co-founder and longtime CEO, was close with many of the board members, and investors had pushed for years to get more outside directors. This matters because it's the board's job to hold management accountable. That clearly didn't happen here. For example, the SEC said that in early 1997, the chief accounting officer told the board, quote, we've had one-off accounting every year that has to be replaced the next year. We've been doing this long enough that the problem has mounted. That should have been a red flag that something was up with the company's accounting. But the SEC didn't mention the board doing anything in response to this. Second, Arthur Anderson shouldn't have been Waste Management's auditor. There were far too many Anderson alumni working at Waste Management. An auditor needs to have independence, and that can't happen when there are cozy relationships between the auditors and the client's executives. Third, there should have been regulations limiting the amount of non-audit fees an accounting firm could earn from an audit client. For years, Anderson had wanted to expand beyond the once-a-year audit, so it was pushing its partners to sell clients additional services. In 1998, for example, the head of Anderson's U.S. operations was promoting his, quote, 2x strategy, which said a partner who brought in $2 million in audit fees should bring in twice as much in non-audit fees. Thus, partners were being judged more for their ability to sell services than for their ability to conduct a quality audit. And we saw this with waste management. Anderson made more than twice as much from non-audit fees than it did from audit fees. The lucrative non-audit fees made auditors feel like they couldn't say no to the client. This compromised the auditor's independence, and it allowed the client to get away with some pretty shady accounting. And by the way, this wasn't just a problem with Arthur Anderson. Many large audit firms were making a killing from non-audit fees. This is why Sarbanes-Oxley, which was passed by Congress in 2002, banned audit firms from providing certain types of non-audit services to audit clients. But the problem has persisted. At the time of this podcast, consulting is the highest source of revenue growth for big four accounting firms. So whatever happened to waste management? Well, after announcing its restatement, waste management was approached by the third largest player in its industry, USA Waste Services, about a merger. The management team at USA Waste Services would run the combined firm, which would adopt the waste management name. And on July 16, 1998, that's exactly what happened. Waste Management agreed to be acquired by a smaller competitor. 88% of the employees at Waste Management's corporate office in Oak Brook, Illinois, were fired, and those who remained were relocated to Houston, where they would get to watch employees of another Anderson client lose their jobs when Enron declared bankruptcy in 2001. It was the heyday of accounting fraud in America, and I hope we never experience anything like that again. But in truth, it's probably just a matter of time. Because whenever there's pressure to meet earnings targets, there will be executives willing to break the rules, and sometimes auditors who enable them. I'm Michael McLaughlin, and you've been listening to Scheme.